0: This is the right way podcast right way podcast
1: The right way podcast The right way podcast The right way podcast the right way podcast The right way podcast.
0: This is Eugene Bacon. I am on the right way podcast talking about Dung black thing and about speculative fiction in general.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction there, Eugen Bacon, and hello to everyone listening to this particular episode of The Right Way podcast program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. The person whom you just heard introducing this particular episode is none other than today's guest, Eugen Bacon. Eugene Bacon and I discussed her latest collection uh, of short stories, which is now out available for the good folks at Transit Lounge Publishing, Transit Lounge Publishing, it you was know, Whatever that word, I don't know why. But anyway, I digress. Eugen Bacon is an incredibly prolific author. Uh, she's perhaps best known for her speculative fiction work. Uh, and just, yeah, I mean, she, she's just an incredible writer. This pairing of her sort of technologically based or attuned mind with her incredibly immense, uh, vast imagination, uh, sometimes inspired by mythologies and fables from all corners of the globe. But uh, yeah, this collection is just... Um, one of the most interesting, unique, uh, no two stories, the same sort of uh, collection of short stories I've ever read, Danged Black Thing. So yeah, please everyone give a big digital round of applause to Eugen Bacon discussing with me her latest collection of short stories available now with the good folks at Transit Lounge Publishing, Danged Black Thing. Eugen Bacon, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you going this this morning, I should say?
0: Oh, really good. I've just been dashing around. I think my life tends to be really busy because I'm juggling so many things in between. And mm. I think maybe that's how I stay focused. And particularly with the lockdown in Melbourne, it just makes it really difficult. I think over the last couple of weeks, I've struggled a little bit, even as a writer. Yeah, it's not easy.
1: You're based in Melbourne, are you? you? You're in Melbourne at the moment
0: i um I'm based in Melbourne, and it's it, it can be really difficult because I am a migrant, mm. and as a migrant, I don't really have a big family support. Mm. so I have a son who sometimes lives with me, but he's moved to stay with his father, which makes the lockdown even more lonely sometimes yeah
1: oh, usually what 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 do you have friends and family that you are well, not family, but do you have friends that you can see, or you strike me as someone that probably has a lot of friends?
0: I I am a bit of both. Like, I am quite an introvert. I love my space. I love Mm. um, my alone time. And I think most writers tend to be a little bit of introverts because that's your space and you fall in love with your characters and you connect with them even more than you do with people. But I'm also a people person because I love talking to people. And so I love going to events, and especially when I'm passionate about something. Mm. If I've written something or somebody asks me a question that really stirs me and I'm dying to tell about it, then I really come out of my shell. And I also teach, which means you have to have that public persona. But at the end of it, I want to come back home and just recharge and wind, have my alone time. But I do have friends. Uh, Lockdown just makes it difficult because my friends uh, don't live within the five-kilometer radius. Mm. And also um, it's longer now, but it's still really difficult to get somebody to come from 15 kilometers to have a walk with you around the tunnel for me to go to where they are. Yeah, When I talk to my family, we have WhatsApp and um, it's really good that way. And every now and then we talk on the phone and it, it makes a difference. And then when I get really lonely, I, I look for an excuse to go and see my son at his father's. So it's about, um, he lives in Melbourne, which is a bit of a way off, but then seeing him is always good. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, that's that's good. I'm glad that you've got like several different sort of ways in which you can... Connect with people when, especially when you get lonely and I mean like lockdown has definitely kind of like intensified I feel loneliness as well. I mean like I live with my girlfriend, but it's, it's mm-hmm. certainly I could feel that it definitely prolonged sort of isolation is, is not good. I think humans are kind of just generally innately sociable and sort, sort of need some sort of human contact.
0: That's right. And and it affects people in different ways, because mm. sometimes I get very prolific. Mm. I can draw from my emotions and what I'm feeling or just wherever I am at to build that into a story. And because it's so intense and I'm so focused into it, it can be quite a powerful story. But sometimes like in the past couple of weeks, I've just been really flat and there's nothing at all. And I can't write a story for story's sake, because I'm a very immersive writer. I have to Feel the story I have to connect with the characters so when it's not happening I just let it go and I just read maybe my favourite writers and watch films and you know TV things that really charge me creatively.
1: I mean it's just such a, a common um, issue I'm finding with uh, with writers um, and I mean obviously you're incredibly prolific with with your body of work and what you produce um, but so many people I speak to um, have have been finding it increasingly difficult to write during the lockdown. Like it's it's, it's like that uh, that gland or that thing that, that amorphous sort of imagination that that you connect with and you know kind of uh, capitalize on whatever it is that you're seeing in your mind's eye is some, somewhat dried up or it's just not there at the moment. It's just it's just the kind of reduced or weird circumstances I guess that we're finding ourselves living in, for all.
0: Yeah, you just make do with what is there. I think Mm. it's almost like um, live each day as it comes because you don't know what tomorrow will hold. Yeah, And the, the writing community is actually really great because I have a strong community of writers where I can network and so on Facebook, Twitter, maybe not so much because Twitter can be a bit brutal. I mm. tend to only go there if I really need to go there. But on Facebook, it's friendlier, it's more personable. It's people that I probably know, people I've met in events, very few of them I'm connected that I haven't actually interacted with in, in any way.
1: Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, you've, you've been to the um, Specfic, you've been a keynote speaker at the Specular Fiction Festival that happens at Writing New South Wales. I swear I've seen your name there before.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm looking forward to the Australian Short Story Festival, which is happening in Adelaide. And so my heart is just here. I'm waiting for what announcement comes. I've booked my flight. I haven't booked my accommodation, but uh, I'm in the programme. And I'm, in a, I'm meant to be in a panel with Susan Medaglia. And that is just, I, I can't wait to meet her. It's. Uh, I, I think I'm a bit awestruck I I hope I'll be able to um, engage with her
1: yeah (laughs) I'm sure you will be able to and I'm sure that she's just as similarly feeling awestruck as well when's that (laughs) what when about is that
0: it's from the 5th to the 7th or the 8th I think it is and I'm also meant to have a of November
1: of November right 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 and
0: I'm also meant to have a book launch on the Sunday so I think it's Sunday the 7th of November I need
1: to check is, I
0: think. yes yes yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes I'm so excited about this book It's the publisher is amazing Barry Tries Scott publishing Barry Scott yeah, I love
1: Barry I love him
0: I've been trying for ages to tap into Gary just to get him to look at one of my manuscripts.
1: Mm. And
0: he, he almost took a couple of my previous books. Mm. And um, he's always been very generous, like in his silences and in his rejections. And in some of them, he thought about something too long and then another publisher took it. So when I sent him that black thing and he responded with a, with a contract, I, 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 I couldn't believe it. It's one of the most magical things that's ever happened to me, and and I'm still in in shock and, and disbelief because oh, what is he Barry, he's so professional. He's just mm. ah, he's a dream. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Tell me, tell me, let's 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 talk about Don Black thing because I want to know. I've got a lot of questions in relation to it. And what <laughs> I want to first know is how the collection kind of came to be was it did it, did it start from the titular obviously the dung thing the titular uh story um of um the uh story of champ mcpherson and Embu. like is that how it started and then from there the rest of the collection kind of came to be tell me a little bit about the process you're of how you went about doing that
0: yeah, maybe to explain that, it it would help if I put it in perspective in terms of who are who I am. Sure. Like af- yes, as please. an African Australian, I think for a while I've really struggled with identity. Uh, especially when I wrote my characters. I didn't know what characters to write. And I think in the past I wrote white characters, because Mm -hmm. I thought I was writing characters for white publishers and white editors and white readers. And so I didn't really see myself in my writing. And it's only, it took a while for me to be comfortable with myself, to accept myself as an other, to accept myself as a sum of many, I am many things. I, I am a scholar. I am an artist. I am a mother. I am a writer. I am a reader. I am an editor. I'm also Black, um, I'm African, but I'm also Australian. And home is where your family is. And my family is here because I have my son in Melbourne, but I also have my family in Africa, in Tanzania. And so it took me a while to be comfortable. I don't have to try to be an African or try to be an Australian. I am both, and that is okay. So accepting that was almost like coming out. It just, uh, it, it, it feels very comfortable when I introduce myself and I say that I'm African-Australian. And so I started exploring because my, my writing tends to be quite exploratory. Mm. I write as a curiosity. My writing is almost like it starts with a question or it starts with an urgency or a, or a or a need. And so I really wanted to write about black people. I wanted to write black people stories to hero black people. And they're, sometimes they're really tragic stories because they could be stories of warning. Mm. And so I started putting together, you know, stories that were almost like um, betwixt characters who were in between migrant stories, um, relationship stories, stories of possibilities or, or, Probability. And I, I really love writing about uh, black women in the village or the black child in the village. And so some of my stories in *Down Black Thing have black women like um, unlimited data which is about uh, a woman in old Kampala. So I've created this, uh, it's sort of like a futuristic Kampala, Kampala, but it's an old Kampala in Uganda. And it's a woman who gives everything for her husband. And, uh, and it, it talks to the sacrifice that women make. We make so many sacrifices for, for our, our partners, for our children. And then there's also Simbi, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a story, the, the opening story in the collection. Mm-hmm. It's has a little black boy. And in this particular one, I wanted to explore um, darkness, something dark, uh, something other, and a little bit of Chitulu um, in, in the story. And so the whole Black Lives Matter, I think, has had a, a deep, a really profound effect on my writing, where I wanted to pay attention to black people and and write stories where um, you know I heroed black people. So that's how the stories came about.
1: Mm. It's so interesting that you mentioned about how you found yourself writing uh, originally, or perhaps from uh, writing white characters, and then over time you sort of embraced writing stories about black people and wanting to convey these sort of stories. And I hear that time and time again, particularly when I speak to, to uh, non-white writers and how that, I think that um, I guess it just might be down to the consumption of reading uh, as a youth. And maybe that's what there's only sort of white uh, stories or stories written by white people available or something like that. But I'm so glad that you have embraced that and, and written these, these stories about black people in this regard, Eugene, because it shines throughout and it's interesting that you mentioned about this sort of urgency and the way in which you go about creating a story as an urgency or a question. And I wondered then how, because you mentioned Symbillion and *The Nameless and how that's the opening story. And the thing I liked, and it's, you did it a couple of times throughout with the, without the sort of disparate stories, array of stories that you see there, but it's written in second person. And it's something that I don't actually encounter all that much. And it fascinates me as to how you then, so you've started with the question and you visualised it, how then do you know what sort of kind of conventional narrative form that you're going to take when you're writing a story? What's, what's, what, where, what part of the process is that and why is that significant?
0: I, it's a really good question because I never really quite know what voice my Mm. characters or the narrator is going to take and particularly because the stories are very, very immersive I have to put myself into the story I have to put myself into the character and to really feel them and one thing I noticed is that I don't have very many first person stories Mm. and I'm not sure why, I remember recently I tried to write a story in first person and maybe it just wasn't working Mm. and when I put it into a second person as a you narrative somehow it, it felt very natural and the story told itself and uh, I've realized that I do have a lot of uh, you narratives they use stories where you it's almost like you're addressing a reader and, and somehow that seems to work for me very very much and I'm not quite sure I think stories differ some of them just come naturally in third person and sometimes I have to experiment first uh, try it first in third person and if it's not working I've actually had done that previously I wrote a, a story completely in third person and then I wanted to make it more it, 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 it nudged me I, I just wanted it to be different in some way and so I transformed it and I made it a you narrative in second person and suddenly it spoke stronger to me so it's really about how the story speaks to me I think primarily first I write for myself because the writing is that curiosity there's something that's urging me to to write it's a question, and you know it, it comes out in the story in whichever form
1: That's so interesting it's interesting that you that you sometimes find that you play with different sort of conventions and narrative styles before you get the the correct one and I did like the use of the second second person because sometimes I feel it, uh, not within your writing or your stories, but sometimes it just feels like it doesn't particularly work, but with yours it always Kind of, it was this sort of innate intimacy, and like you said, you mentioned it. With, you've been describing to the reader, and it's just such a way in which a unique, unique way in which to engage with a reader, particularly of your own sort of uh, urging stories, or as you said, you were urged along with the the stories and how they were told. One yeah, thing I noticed, is, oh, sorry, you go.
0: It is a little bit of a risk because not many people or not many editors or publishers or readers might be very comfortable with a second person story. Mm. And so, uh, and not many people can do it well, but for some reason, it just feels very comfortable to me. And, and the stories just come out really comfortably comfortably when I write them in that, in, in that second person.
1: Well, I'm glad that you have, I'm glad that you have each time. <laughs> what Something that I really like about your writing, Eugene, and I think it's, I think it's to do with the fact that Like, uh, I think you're a computer scientist by profession. I think that's your, that you're, sorry, you go.
0: Yeah, so I do have a background in computer science. Right. I started in IT and worked for quite a while in IT, but then somewhere down along the line, uh, I had an opportunity to move into communications. Mm. And so communications almost seemed like the closest fit to my writing, but I tend to work in, in, projects that are really technical and i can work with technical people uh, you know like in whether it's in banking or it itself in in telematics at the moment i'm in the telematics industry and so I, i'm able to relate with technical people that way and i think it's because of that technical background
1: it's interesting that, the te- that you mentioned the technical background relating with people like that because, I mean, several of the stories feature heavily around technology, some of which has been realised and is contemporarily available and others is kind of as yet sort of died somewhat in the near future, particularly the closing story as well, which is one of my favourites. I absolutely love loved that. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I, just, I think that there's this, this beautiful marriage in your writing of technology and being fascinated by that and these also these sort of sometimes surreal sort of almost fantastical settings and surroundings but there's always a deep grounding I find Eugen, with your writing of uh, familial dynamics and well-realized characters so there's regardless of the setting and what it might be or the situation the characters themselves are always relatable and fully realized like I believe them as human beings and that's something that kind of and sometimes I feel that um, within the spec fiction, broad spec fiction genre, speaking purely broadly, sometimes the characters themselves, their motivations and who they are are sometimes lost in this kind of high concept sort of execution of trying to tell this story. How is it that you have these characters that are just so grounded and realised? What do you think that, what do you attribute that to? Is it because you yourself are family driven and you, you, know, you love family and that, that's something that always intrigues you? How do you go about blending these two kind of disparate components?
0: Yeah, I think character and characterization is very important to me mm. in my stories. And when I look back, even if it's a te- a technology story, whether, or or even if I'm writing something that's purely fantasy or science fiction or horror, the dominant motif in that story is a person's relationship to someone, to some place, to something, even if it's an entity as it is in the the stories in the EU Mm. and the nameless. And I, I like to explore that sentience, what it means to, to, to be to belong you know to become and i think because i am an immersive writer where i really have to put myself into the character that helps to bring out the believability of the character because i can almost see them i can smell them i can feel them uh, i am me Mm. uh, and, and that helps and i also do a lot of research in most of the stories It doesn't matter whether it's a short story or whether I'm writing a novella or a novel, the research aspect is really, really important. And I think part of it helps uh, with um, having done a PhD. It helps you to know how to research extensively and to understand that having researched it all it's it's really for you to have that knowledge it's not for you to dump it into a story because having that background knowledge in your head then helps you to understand what are the motivations of the character because you understand them so intimately and you understand their events and then you you can weave that into a story and still keep the story focused around the character. So my stories really, I'd say, are quite Mm character-driven. It matters a lot what happens to the character, just their whole transformation arc. What is it? What do they want? What's what's in their way? And how do they reach where they get, or how don't they reach where they get? Yeah.
1: Yeah, It's interesting that you mentioned that you describe yourself as an immersive writer, and I totally see that as well within your writing, and the characters themselves. um, There was the quote at the beginning, uh, it must be from you. And it says something like, Words to the effect? You talk about the diversity of voices and you say something like, oh, I am many, I am hybrid. And I think that kind of is exemplified in what you're talking about there and this engaging of characters and this being so immersive in them and their stories. And that's sort of how, I guess, it all kind of comes to fruition.
0: That's correct. I I think most of my stories tend also to be stories of inhabitation, Mm. um, sort of multiple embodiments, uh, the stories of multiplicity, because I am hybrid. I am a sum of many. Mm. I uh, I'm integral but there's so much about me and so I think a lot of that invariably comes out in my stories where it's characters who are many in one form or the other and especially I think the migrant stories come really naturally to me because then I can really put myself into the shoes of the migrant as in um, fantasisms of existence which is one of the stories in Black Thing and they're both migrant stories and they're almost like vignettes, uh, parallel stories, narratives, but I could really put myself into the shoes and, and really understand the, the deep longing of the characters and what it is they were looking for.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned longing and you talk about the different sort of characters as well and understanding their motivations. It's, there's something that also kind of shone throughout and mind you, I've said it in the intro as well, which you obviously haven't heard as yet, but I love that the stories themselves, no two ever felt they were the same. They were always so different. But there was some like that's why I wanted to ask you the question about was there an overarching theme or something like that? But there was a few sort of um, things that appeared here and there, different perspectives. One in which I also felt kind of shone through and the settings themselves and the characters are disparate throughout. But I was always interested whenever you and it wasn't just within Dung Black thing. Um, but also in your other sort of writings that you kindly sent me as well as some of your poetry. And I feel that you're a lover of love, Eugen. I feel that you, you (laughs) love love. I love love too. I'm a hopeless romantic, always have been for my sins. And I think that that really shines through. So you've balanced this throughout and this includes characters. We've talked about sentient characters and how some not, not necessarily human We've talked about I'm hybrid, I'm many and all the different sort of characters, but the lust and the love, is something that also I feel that comes back time and time again in some of your writings. Talk to me about that because it's actually, I find uh, love and lust are two of the kind of hardest components of the human condition to kind of earnestly describe and sort of engage with a reader. But you've done it and I would love to know because it shines throughout your writing. Tell me about it, being a lover of love.
0: (laughs) That is a wonderful question, (laughs) so i I think, going back to what I said about my stories tend to be relationship stories, a relationship of someone with something with some place with uh, you know an entity, an event. and love comes it, it goes back to my passion. I'm a very passionate person. I, I think I get really intense and very focused. And I've actually fallen in love with lots of my characters that, you know, I see them as my dream. Oh, that, that is exactly who I, I'd fall in love with. And so perhaps it comes down to the longing, that the way I create the characters, they sort of embody some of that longing in me. And it, it's not, um, it, it's not, how can I say it? it, it, it it's quite mixed it, it's very diverse it comes to the engaging with difference where for example i've had stories where characters are quite asexual in uh, i was editing a manuscript that's um uh, of major fools which is a novel coming out in in march next year and one of the characters just cannot stand people they cannot stand like they are because of their upbringing um things like sex or love are totally not within their domain and they feel an abhorrence to it. But I also, within the same story, I have, uh, you know, uh, lesbian relationships, I have, um, you know, Intra sexual relationships, and it's really just it, it's part of that exploration and part of that curiosity. Mm. And because I get so immersed in the story, I can feel the love and I can feel the longing. And I can, you know, I I let the characters take me where they want to go.
1: Yeah, I could definitely when you say I feel the love, I think that shines through the writing itself. Like you can tell when a writer is, and I guess it's kind of you're imbuing the words with such a strong emotion and you can feel it when a writer feels it. And when a writer doesn't, you can, you, you're not feeling it either. So it's just another form of how you've engaged, I guess, with all your sort of writings and it just kind of shines through like that. We've talked yeah. about, all oh, you go.
0: And I think um, sometimes even writing, like I laugh when I write, I cry when I write. Sometimes even rereading the stories, I can almost experience them as, uh, 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 you know, uh, I was writing them at the time. Mm. And maybe, like, you know how sometimes when people talk about serial killers, how they like to um, recap the event and when they talk about it, you can see it and they, it's like they're feeling as if they're actually participating in that actual act. Mm. And I think because of my immersive writing that's how it is when i write a story that sort of immersion really gets there and it gets me places but one other thing that somebody said to me is that usually when you read a writer's collections the voice is very similar you, you like reading one story you almost anticipate what the other stories are going to sound like but they said your stories are very different one story is so different from the other this story could be really somber and maybe in third person. And this this story could be really intense and uh, maybe from the second person. And then this story is all giggly and it's so different. Like the the theme story in Down Black Thing, it's sort of really funny, it's very comical. It's it's quite a tickler in itself. And so I think because each story is individual and fully immersed in that story for that point in time, and it obsesses me. I can't think of anything other than that story. Then when I move to the next story, then I'm really intensely focused on that particular story. So it's almost like a relationship, think of it that way. So I have a relationship with this story and I absolutely love it to death. And then when I put it aside, I move to the next one and it has all my focus and I absolutely love it and I'm totally immersed in it. And so I can get into the emotions of that story fully.
1: Absolutely. and I mean that that's exemplified throughout this and it's interesting that uh, someone else mentioned as well, like with your your stories, no two voices are the same, and that's what I was saying as well like I'm definitely the whoever told you that is absolutely spot on with that. We've talked about and it was it was also really crazy to hear as well you and called that uh, it's such a it brings forth such a concentrated strength and maybe even a confusion of emotions in you when you sort of read these when, when you write the story. And then when you read it later, it's like as a sort of a memory, like an, uh, I don't know, like an empirical sort of experience that you've slotted and assigned to that story. So then when you revisit it later, it brings forth the same emotions, kind of what you were touching on there, I guess. Yeah. I, uh,
0: I can like, if I had a, if, if I could channel my stories, if I didn't let the stories tell themselves, I probably would have many happily ever afters, because I I am a hopeful romantic like you are, Mm. Sam, and I, I, I love happy endings but that is not realistic and that is not life. Mm. And I think I want my stories to reflect life. I want them to be realistic and to be credible. And sometimes I let the stories take control. I don't really know when I start a story how it's going to finish because the characters almost determine where the story goes. And so it could also be a very brutal story. And, you know, at the end of it, it's like, wow, oh, my God. Why did you kill that darling? Um, but it's just where the story went,
1: yeah. Well, I'm glad that you do that and kind of almost surrender yourself to whatever you see in your mind's eye rather than trying to um, kind of usher it on to a sort of a happy ending, which you're right. And it's interesting that you say that, that life is not like that. But, I mean, there's several times throughout... We see characters and so some, some like phantasms of existence, for example, that begins literally with the, the end of life and the birth as well, the water breaking. And I want you to talk a little bit about that, Eugene, as well, because I feel that there's some, the stories and we've talked about, and you mentioned about some stories are, can uh, can be awful in terms of the, what, what happens to characters, what they experience. But I also feel like you enjoy revisiting the cyclical kind of inescapable nature of life, life and death be it brutal and tragic or kind of a natural sort of conclusion to one's life and sort of the best circumstances. Tell me about that in terms of how you've encapsulated that and why you keep revisiting sort of life and death in that regard.
0: I think it's a curiosity. It's mm. that innate curiosity. One, I'm very fascinated with life and uh, I'd love to live life to the fullest. And I think part of that curiosity comes in my stories where I'm always looking, I'm always searching for something. And then I'm also really curious about, you know, after life, what comes after death or what does death mean? But it also comes back to I've experienced a lot of death in my family and in my life and I've lost loved ones. And so death becomes almost like a natural thing in my writing. And sometimes uh, we, we steal a lot from our lives as writers. And so sometimes we draw from the everyday and it's easy for me to draw from those feelings and those emotions that I've felt before and just the loss of something, uh, the loss of someone. One of my um, sisters uh, died of AIDS. And I remember the very first thing that I did soon as I heard about her death was I I wanted to write. I didn't know where the story would go, but I really wanted to write. And I wrote this story. And I I think in hindsight, it was helping me to understand what it is that I was feeling. Mm. And I realized that I was very angry. I was very angry with her because I felt that she had let herself die because there's so much stigma associated with aids and so and um, she was left to take the medications that she, she that would have saved her and i think she reached a point of hopelessness because she had lost a few children and when the last of her child was almost the same age as my son uh, died i think she just gave up and she stopped taking her medication and so i was really really angry and in this particular story, um, it, it is a migrant. And I think I put myself into that character because in answering the questions that the character was experiencing, I was answering my own questions. And uh, this character decides to go and see a psychologist just to be able to understand what she was going through and to be able to process her grief. And that bridge comes out. And I remember in one of the scenes, if I can remember it correctly, she um, she she says the the psychologist says what well, what do you want to talk about and she says why don't they call it what it is what mm. it is and he says why don't they call what and she's like what it is why don't they call it what it is it's not malaria it's not tuberculosis it's aids it's aids and so she really feels it and and that was part of my rage and, and mm. that emotion putting myself into that story. I think it was very cathartic. I felt a healing. And even today when I read that story, and it is also in Down Black thing. Mm, mm, mm. Still She Visits, that's the story. And um, it, it, it helped me process my grief because then through the protagonist's eyes, I could feel that emotion and just be able to understand what it was that I was going through.
1: Well, I'm glad that you were able to to process and it was mentioned you mentioned a couple of times there Eugen that you're processing and trying to figure out because there's so many questions that naturally arise from that particularly of such a tragic loss as your sister like that I mean and to to be able to do so in what I would consider a productive method which is to, is to channel them into a form of writing because even then just by virtue of the process itself and asking these sort of questions it's innately tough and raw because you're digging into a wound to try and I'm not exactly heal straight away but to try and understand it so that at some stage i guess healing might take place
0: that's correct and um, in another story which is in the other collection uh, the road to wukwu mm. it's called swimming with daddy mm. so my father passed away years ago but i've always felt very connected with him and this particular story was dedicated to him because it was almost like i really wanted to connect with him i really wanted to get in touch with him to really experience the situations and what it would have felt like and so bringing him back in the form of a story and building that connection with my father in swimming with Daddy was also quite cathartic, and um, yeah, that's that. Those themes come back into my stories in different ways.
1: What a beautiful and wondrous thing it is to to kind of, um, I guess, without getting kind of too big concept there. It's sort of like extending yourself out to the cosmos and hearing from them because you're you're capturing from your mind's eye. And you're converting it into the medium of writing and that in itself is helping you. No one else says it's literally entirely yourself and internally uh, processing something or gaining new insight, even though there's something that's happened and it's it's entirely on you. It's your entire own process, this writing form, particularly when it's something as deeply personal uh, as, as the loss of a loved one. It's just, it's just fascinating, particularly within your own example and how you've processed that.
0: That's right, and I think that's one of the reasons why I love speculative fiction, Mm. because speculative fiction gives you a safe space to explore, and you can go anywhere with it because it's speculative, Mm. and you can go as far as your imagination takes you, and so I, I find it really easy to explore different themes and to explore different characters within speculative fiction. And especially when I'm writing about, um, you know, black characters or writing stories that are so intimate to me, you know, people that I've lost, people that I've loved, events that perhaps shook me. Uh, I've I've, I've had a lot of, um, you know, when we had the US presidential election, I have poetry and and stories where, you you know, I interrogate leaders. What is it that makes a good leader? What is it that makes a bad leader? So my, my, my stories answers answer questions and my curiosities in
1: that way it's just the best best sort of form i guess of trying to understand a kind of impossible world or ask impossible questions it's just to to think out loud albeit through the medium of writing and then kind of gaining new insight i'm so glad that you do that And i'm so glad that that you're not shy about kind of viewing your sort of stories or basing them in some in some way or allowing them to be shaped around sort of like your own sort of losses that have happened in your life there, you're doing. Because, because some writers just do not do that because it's just, it just can be so traumatic and confronting, even though it's obviously fertile ground to to make these sort of stories that can then immediately engage a reader. But um, I, yeah, I just know some writers that just do not do it just purely because it can be just too trauma, traumatic for them to do it.
0: Mm. It it can be. And maybe that's why I'm just thinking to what I said about writing in first person, Mm. because first person is very, very intimate and it it can enhance the trauma. And so sometimes perhaps writing in second person or in third person, it's almost like you're removing yourself a little bit from Mm. the situation Mm. and you can still write about it in a safe way. And I think part of being a writer is that I'm very open. I can write about anything. I can talk about anything you can ask me anything about sexuality you can ask me anything about death you can ask any ask me anything that I'm curious about and I'll continue to be curious about I say I'll I'll try anything once or or twice so it's that curiosity I'm always curious about things and you know I'll I'll always explore different things
1: it's the best way to live life isn't it to be curious and try everything at least once I'm totally with you on that so we talked about that you've, you've drawn inspiration from real life, uh, as well as asking questions. Uh, that's kind of how your process begins of posing questions. I'm fascinated by, and there's a couple of examples, like a pot of mermaids I found was, it was influenced. And to me, uh, it felt like it was a beautiful fusion of almost like Nordic sort of mythology fused with perhaps some African fables. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that as well, Yujin, because you've talked about real life and how that influences you. But I feel sometimes as well, you might be influenced by kind of traditional stories or fables, not just from one particular region in the world, but across lots, which would probably suggest to me as well that you're a voracious reader and consumer of all sorts of fables and mythologies. Tell me a little bit about that if I was on the money of that stuff.
0: Yeah, it's quite spot on. I, I am a voracious reader. I love reading. And I think I, grow, I grew up reading. And when I talked about my father, mm. he understood my love for reading. And so he always bought me books. And I grew up reading stories by um, Chinua Achebe, um, um, Kamaralai, the African child, Margaret of Gola, how and why stories, how the zebra got his stripes, how the hyena got his laugh, how the crocodile got to live in the water. And so that reading really helped. And I, I love mythology and fables. And so I think part of it is in the genre of bending, or in trying to write something different where it's, it's almost like a postmodern aspect where you put a new skin into old, something old. And so when I take an old story and just try to reimagine it, something different. And so in a pod of mermaids, I took part of NOS. Uh, mythology Mm. and it it was exploring what happens uh, when Loki gets really cunning and, and what happens to Loki's wife and what does she do what sort of longings arise as a result of Loki's cunning and so that's the exploration in that story. And I've written stories where I, I drew from fairy tales and I adapted them and, and introduced black characters, just write a different kind of story with a different car- type of character and with a different kind of ending um, mm. motif, that questioning, yeah.
1: Yeah, again, it's, it's, even with fables, mythology, it's all presenting, I find, a question. It's a, there's like a question okay. at its core or a theme that's explored, and it kind of also touches on what you were saying about how like your writing process much of it is it stems from a question and there's a sense of urgency as well sort of imbued within that and fables can do that mythologies can do that from all across the world i'm so i I so love hearing that your dad encouraged your like nourished your your voracious reading habit as a child and all the sort of stories in which you read that's so awesome to hear as well and i think that There's imagery that shines throughout, which is, you know, also kind of you see in Fables Mythologies and throughout your work um, and there's different sort of characters. Again, they're so disparate, they're so different, but there's so many different sort of elements that, or sort of like imagery that fascinates them. And I found one that kind of shone through several times throughout throughout the collection, Black thing, is this appreciation for the sky and the moon and the changing faces as well. (laughs) And I mean, like, I feel like that's also just you with your curiosity that you've kind of touched on there, and I mean then it expands into the cosmos and then obviously within one of the the stories was uh was a visit in Whitechapel with the the extraterrestrials and the aliens and all of this. And this again to me is like you're you're posing these questions and you're extending not just beyond your roots and your upbringing and your family life and your life and questions that you might ask in contemporary society, but also to beyond the world. That's how much you're expanding out there. And I guess that's kind of part and parcel of spec fiction. So tell me a little bit about that as well, Eugene, because it sounds like you're interested in the cosmos and that kind of, uh, <laughs> life out there.
0: Yes, I, I know that I, I, I love water. Mm. I love the moon. I love night. I love the stars. And also because I'm a very sensual writer. Mm -hmm. It matters to me what I see, what I touch. What I smell, what I taste. And so when I'm, I'm, I'm writing a character or I'm writing a place, I'm really curious to know what it looks like. Uh, how does it feel like? What's the texture of it? Uh, especially when I write a, a relationship story, what does the lover feel like? What does he smell like? Uh, when he kisses you, how does it feel exactly? Um, you know, that sort of thing. And so that comes out in the writing. I think that's, that's how it comes out. But when um, the story that you mentioned, A Visit in Whitechapel, mm. it came about as an invitation to an anthology. And the particular anthology is called London-Centric by NewCon Press. And what they wanted to write was a futuristic London. And, because I lived in London for quite a while. I wondered what would a futuristic London look like? And because I I have a deep affection for children, I wanted to see this story from the eyes of children. Mm. And then it came down to the exploration where the voice again is very different. It's a wee story where you have two characters that speak as one in one voice. And I could really get into the, the, the we, the, the twins, and really get into their story and what they see together. And that's how the story came about. But I, I, I became a child like them in that particular story, and I could feel what they felt, and I could see what they saw, and their astonishment when they met the new characters who, in their minds, they are aliens. But I wanted the aliens to be something that I'm familiar with, mm. so that they're, they're black characters who've arrived, and even the world that is there, the African, you know, African animals and it's almost like an African place uh, within the futuristic London and I was able to connect with his story that way.
1: Wow so much to unpack from that so yeah first and foremost (laughs) I totally agree with you you are very much a sensory writer and to me I feel like that is the foundation of good writing is the sensory is to is to to be able to sense all your senses are uh, stimulated by the reading you know that's how that's how you're there in the room with that person whether it's the smell sense just every sense every sense and you you definitely do that with all your sort of writings there as well. And again, when you're talking about a visit to Whitechapel, it just kind of it very much typewise or exemplifies your sort of writing there, where it's these sort of fantastical ideas or envisioning a futuristic London, but then it's still firmly deeply trenched in the ground of realistic characters and fully realized in terms of their wants, needs, their family dynamics. And it's again something that we've talked about and you've revisited. And I always just find that so interesting with your writing Eugene because I've read speculative fiction. I've read, I wouldn't say a huge amount. I mean, like I really, really like, there's a couple of writers out there. There's a guy called China Meville and some of your stuff actually kind of reminded me, what, a visit to Whitechapel uh, from Whitechapel actually kind of reminded me of um, a book this guy wrote called Embassy Town as well, which is kind of like a foundation of these different sort of languages. I can't even describe it as the weirdest stuff, but it's so awesome. And I found that that's, that's what you've sort of done there. You, just, you take speculative fiction, you subvert or you challenge the ways in which it can kind of be perceived as being uh, high concept compromising character. So you just have a bland every man character that uh, is purely there as a plot for the passage of the plot. You actually make characters that are realistic and engaging throughout. And I think that all stems from just, just you being so connected with your family and, um not being shy i guess about kind of like utilizing your own sort of experiences including some very traumatic ones from what you just outlined before and imbuing that into your characters pouring this real and relatable emotion and experience into these characters and then creating these crazy worlds
0: that's right and i like to think of my writing as literary speculative fiction Mm. and you know people might wonder what exactly does that mean and when i look at the reviews of my writing what people say they talk about the poeticity they talk about the beauty of the language they talk mm. about the playfulness of the language and I think I really love that like uh, uh, I'm really focused on the character but also how the story tells itself the beauty of how it unravels even if I'm writing something really tragic it's the worst possible outcome but just the beauty of how it happens just in the in the reading because I'm I am the work's first reader so language is very important to me Mm. I love playing with language and experimenting with different ideas and uh, some of my influences are Toni Morrison who who wrote such beautiful stories and she could write about beans and it would be the most beautiful story you'd ever read. And I I love Peter Temple's writing Mm. and he is a crime fiction writer. But when he won the Miles Franklin Award, the judges were really astonished at how beautifully he wrote the crime fiction that even forgot that it was a crime fiction and it fit really well in the literary fiction world. And so that's, I think that's what I aspire. I, I, I aspire to write stories that are literary in that way. Uh, the stories that can be considered literature and there are stories that can be Powerful and transforming, and um, just to almost to um, shift people's perception of speculative fiction, because people sometimes think of it as a as a genre that's less than um, literary fiction, but it's not. There's beautiful speculative fiction out there. I've read authors who just um, live in oh, and you know. Uh, there's a whole list of them. they are writers like Jeffrey Ford, who's uh, he's an American writer. But even right here in Australia, we have Angela Slater. We have Karen Warren there's um uh, J. Ashley Smith, in fact J. Ashley Smith. He's not a household name, but if you read his stories, he's so beautiful, he's so lyrical and um, he writes short stories and he writes a novella. Uh, he has a novella that he published. and it's just it shows you that speculative fiction can be more.
1: Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, I think you're right. I think speculative fiction has got a pretty raw deal over the years in terms of what people sort of dismiss it as less than, like you said, uh, less than literary fiction, which absolutely isn't. Um, I think the times are changing a bit though. And I think that like the best way that I've sort of seen that change, even within my own sort of, uh, lifetime is the sort of speculative fiction, like the introduction of sort of uh, the vast popularity of spec fiction sort of festivals, like such as that you've, that you've been keynote speakers at and guests at. So I think that that sort of shows that there definitely is a newfound appreciation for, for the genre. Uh, if you That's could true. even be called that. And I think that you're right. I think that uh, good stories are good stories. And you mentioned the example of Peter Temple, but I think also with you it applies just as well is the stories that transcend uh, being typified or pigeonholed as one particular genre uh, in this instance, like a very broad sort of speculative fiction, which in itself, kind of, it's kind of not really a genre. It's just so broad. It's just a, um, uh, I guess, just a way of someone so they couldn't typify like a particular type of story. But you're right. I mean, like, if you focus on the beauty of the words and the stories and the characters themselves, it will transcend any sort of genre, I guess. And I think that there's, sort of an emerging popularity of this, including your own writing, uh, Eugen, in terms of that sort of thing happening. What do you reckon?
0: Yeah, I think I'm slowly becoming visible, especially mm. in Australia. And when I talked about um, speculative fiction, uh, people see it as as less of literary, uh, less than literary fiction. Mm. It's mostly in Australia where it hasn't really taken off. Mm. But speculative fiction is in a whole different domain in in Europe, in in the U.S. And I think Australia is beginning to understand it a little bit more. And uh, I love speculative fiction as an umbrella because then again, somebody is not approaching it, asking is this fantasy, is this science fiction, Mm. is this horror? Because they're looking for very specific things but I, I blend different elements. And so because uh, if I draw from my culture and my traditions, say we have superstition, we have magical realism, there are different aspects that you can draw from and put into speculative fiction, and then you know, just make it a wholesome story in itself without confining it to any particular uh, genre.
1: Mm. Yeah, because once you start confining works to genres, I guess then you kind of if you're going to go down that route, that's kind of when you kind of paint yourself into a corner because then you've got to sort of abide by certain conventions and norms and all that gets pretty stifling. And I just, I just wouldn't work for you, Eugen, because you're just you're creating these, like you said, you pose these sort of questions. You derive from your own real life, but then you have these these questions both about contemporary society and I guess perennial sort of questions. So that alone, kind of the questions are so varied and disparate it means that you can't kind of follow conventions because otherwise it's just, it's just not going to gonna work. And I'm glad you don't because I don't think we we'll would be having a conversation. I don't think you'd be as successful as you have been if you, if you did that. I'm so glad that you've embraced it so much in terms of not being pigeonholed and not sort of uh, following any sort of conventions and taking from certain genres or elements, whatever works for you within the scope of your story and your mind's so eye and what you see.
0: I have been very fortunate because mm. I, I know that what I write is different. I know that what I write is not for everybody and that's Mm. okay. And also when you read my collection, uh, I know that some stories might stand out to you more than others. You may connect with some and not connect with others, but that's okay. And I think that's, uh, it, it simply means that I've become really comfortable with myself as a writer and I'm comfortable to explore and to experiment. And I've been really fortunate that editors and publishers have been open to accept that, different kind of writing Mm. and and that's really helped And, and perhaps if I started off writing writing differently it may have been quite a fiasco but I think I waited until I became a little bit more established and, and that helps. Mm. And so I think initially I, I wrote more literary fiction, uh, not really speculative fiction then, but I, as I began to understand myself more and to be comfortable as a writer and feel that I'm, I'm, I'm in, a, in, a, in a good space as a writer, I could explore a little bit more and write those different stories and take all those risks that I've taken with my stories.
1: Good. I'm so glad. I'm seriously so glad that you have done that. And that's the path that you've chosen. It's interesting that you've mentioned that you you started off, you think more sort of literary fiction and then kind of went into the the realm of spec fiction, you know, umbrella term as you, as you put it. Um, It's it's weird because me, I'm kind of different. I've kind of gone from, uh, I started off writing novels that were kind of uh, firmly steeped in horror and weird fiction. And then the older I've gotten, uh, what really attracts me. So I used to love big concepts and you know, characters themselves weren't that interesting. And then the older I've gotten, the more I'm motivated and fascinated just by average people and characters and realizing them and all their motivations. And I think that's why perhaps your writing connects with me so well, is because the characters themselves are so relatable and so fully realized. And I love, I love, I love any journey that, it, that a writer can take me on if I've got if they've got a character like that and I'm engaged with them then they can just take me down to the shops and go and buy a weak cup of tea and it will be the most fascinating thing ever. And I'll just be like, I love it because I'm there with them. And that's what you do, Eugene. So I think that's really, really good. But like, obviously that's, you, you don't just write stories where you go down and take a weak cup of tea and stuff like that. You write these amazing stories, some fantastical, some magical realism that you touched on, but they're just always so disparate and different. And I love it. Now, I'm sure you listen listened to a couple of episodes of the podcast and there's always a question I love to ask because you, again, much like Dung Black Thing, no two stories are the same. So I want to know if there was a period in your life or if there was one moment where you considered giving up on writing, like it almost became seemingly too much or it just wasn't working and you felt that you were at a crossroads as it were and then you prevailed, you decided to keep going and then came to the point where obviously we're talking, you've got another book in the works. So Tell me, Eugene, mm-hmm. has there been one particular standout moment or was there a period or you haven't really encountered something like that within your career of writing?
0: Oh, I, I have had a significant event that happened years back mm. because I'm a very immersive writer and that I really have to feel the story. So if, if I don't really feel it, then there's nothing coming. And years back, I went through a really traumatic Uh, event, where it wasn't so much the divorce, because I I, I divorced early, and uh, it it was a custody battle that really shook me, It shook me to the core, Mm -hmm. because um, in the African culture, which is my culture, you know, um, the the family is very important. And so that fear that I had of losing my son was so stunning that for two years, I couldn't write anything, Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing, there was nothing in my head. And it works two ways because sometimes like the uh, the example that I gave when my sister died, my first instinct was to crawl to the computer and write the story. But in this particular instance, I just, there was nothing Mm. I think I just dried up and there was absolutely nothing Uh, it was sort of like a a shock that really stunned me and I couldn't write and for two years there was nothing at all and then one day just suddenly an idea came and after those two years I wrote a story and I remember crying when I wrote this story because I I never thought I'd ever write again Mm. it just there was nothing I, I just couldn't see that possibility of ever writing again and maybe that was my period of writer's block and so I've been fortunate that since that time uh, and that was a really beautiful story that I wrote beautiful to me I think because it, it meant a lot that I was able to write it yeah But since then, I've never really experienced such an intense writer's block that I couldn't write anything. And even when I get a commission story, and a commission story is is, is difficult because it means that it's somebody else's vision. So they have a vision and they have a theme. Maybe the theme is uh, we want something, um, climate change in five years, write a story about this and we'll see if it fits into the anthology but I have to fill the story Mm. and so in in commission stories uh, sometimes I let them sit for a while uh, while I'm walking around the town or I'm soaking in a bath, suddenly the story begins to form in itself and it begins to make sense and get stronger and you know like the past three weeks have been a little bit dry, I haven't really been filling a story but now I'm dying to get off this bloody podcast so I can write the story that's right ticking, it's in my head, I just it's stirring, it's nudging, I want to write it and so I've learned to be patient with myself when something is not happening, when the mind is quiet, it's all right. I just give it time and I absorb nature. They say that look at the greens and the blues, that's the sky. I look at the sky and I look at the moon and I have a walk around the botanical gardens and I look at the flowers and I listen to the birds and I look at the babies and I look at the parents and how they interact with their children. And I look at the lovers and how they are, and I know this one's are not having a good time, or this one's are in a really good place. And then suddenly the story just comes. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so, uh, and sometimes it could begin as as poetry. I could write just five lines of poetry and then slowly maybe write another five lines of poetry. And then suddenly, out of that poetry, I can see a story coming and and shaping. And so, yeah.
1: That's the best Um, attitude and and sort of process. Sorry, you're going to say
0: no and that helps me it helps me i know that when i get a dry period just somehow because i i i got through that really bad part of the two years when i couldn't write i know now that and, and i really hope in you know, wood that nothing would be so traumatic that i wouldn't be able to write
1: well i'm so glad that i mean you look back at it now and i think i think a lot of the time every single writer certainly within my own journey as well there's been a period of just um no productivity at the time. Uh, I guess you kind of look at it because my writers sort of measure and denote their are successful. their sort of output by the amount that they're sort of churning out or generating stories. And then thereby, if you're not uh, writing, then that's kind of considered like not a good period. But I think that many of them are sort of formative and, and kind of essential in getting it. It's just a, it's just a certain chapter in your life. And I guess you, do, you look back, such as what you've done, which is where you prevailed, you know, two years later, uh, started writing and wrote, uh, as as you said, they're a very beautiful story. I think that that's just sort of a natural part of the process and everyone sort of goes through it. I think it's just as long, you know, take as long as you want, as long as you come back to it and revisit it eventually. And the way in which you describe then, like your process of uh, not so much if you've got writer's block, but if you have like a commission piece or something that you need to kind of figure out, uh, just going and appreciating like me or like like you, Eugen, I, I appreciate just the splendor of, of life and just enjoying skies just you know particularly particularly the afternoon sky i live in a apartment that gets quite a good quite a good shot you know and these pinks and these you know all these crazy colors like indigo and, ochre and all those sort of stuff there's just just amber there's just um you know amazing and exquisite and when you look at that how can you not feel inspired or like what you said where you go for a walk around botanical gardens and your people watch and stuff like that it's impossible not to seemingly get inspired it seems like fate or cosmos or whatever your sort of faith is is kind of tapping you on the shoulder and pointing to you at a potential scene in which you could write and then it just all sort of expands from there i guess
0: that's right and and sometimes it's also just about decluttering your mind Mm. so there, there are times when i'm so busy and i'm juggling so many things and i feel there's absolutely no story in my head at this moment but when i take time for myself and just give yourself that space and a story comes yeah
1: lovely that's so lovely well, Eugene, what I want to end with then is a question that I always like to ask as well, which is what advice would you give, and I'd like to, if what advice would you give particularly for speculative fiction writers or people aspiring to write speculative fiction because it's, uh, it's something that I think is burgeoning and a lot of people who otherwise might not have um, written stories in the past because their minds attuned like your own may want to write speculative fiction but didn't think there was a market for it in Australia, which is no longer the case. Obviously, it's becoming uh, burgeoning and becoming... So popular with people such as yourself that are, you know, kind of paving the way like that. So tell me, what advice would you give to aspiring speculative fiction writers within the podcast?
0: Yeah, I think I'd say first be patient with yourself. Mm. There's always that instinct when you write the first draft of a story, you immediately want to send it out. But maybe that version is not ready yet be patient with a story, put it aside for a couple of days, look at it with new eyes. And uh, like when you write the first draft of your story, if if it's not interesting enough for you to read it a second time, then don't send it to anybody else because they won't be able to read it. So that editing process is very important, but also in speculative fiction, because I am a reader for a few magazines where I help the editors determine which stories to take or which stories uh, to reject. What I see is that some writers really focus on the word count and they want to write this really big story, but at the end of it, in the 10,000 words, you're saying this story could just be 2,000 words. Mm. You didn't need all that many words to tell that story. And so it's to understand what is your core story. And because you're writing a short story, you don't have to fill it with all those many words. And, you know, the world building is important, but the characters are also important. So if the reader can't engage with the characters, then, you know, they lose interest in the story because... We as readers, we look for ourselves in the stories. We look for convincing characters. And so you could give me the best technology or the best world building in your story. But if I can't connect with it, if I can't engage with it, then it's all useless.
1: Yeah, it's so true. It's so, it's so true. And that's kind of what we've already been touching on as well. I mean, like the, the, for me, what drives a story, you can have an incredible concept, but if it's if the characters themselves aren't engaging or they're too pedestrian, uh, no wants, needs, flaws, or anything like that. Then you'd, I, I myself would lose interest. That's why I agree with you. It's so, it's so so important. Characters getting the characters right.
0: Absolutely, and I'd also say don't um, don't. Rejections can feel personal, mm. but
1: they're not
0: personal. Uh, Some editors or publishers can be quite ruthless in their rejections, but it's not personal. It probably just means that it's not the right place for your story. So I have had stories that have been rejected millions of times and then they ended up being quite winners. And uh, I'll show you this book. Uh, I I don't know whether you you have this one. So this was rejected so many times, including by Macmillan and it ended up being published by Macmillan because I didn't give up. So they rejected it and what I did is I looked at it and I revised it and I reworked it and I shaped it into such a way that it would meet what they were looking for. And so sometimes the rejection just means either you haven't, it's not the right place for you and you can find a better home for your story or it could just mean that maybe you just need to put a little more, uh, trick the story a little bit and then just try and send it back again and see what happens
1: a good way of putting it and like looking at it as well because yeah I, i'm with you Eugen. like i've uh, i've had i've had my work uh pretty brutally torn to pieces a few times but i think that again like what you sort of touched on there it just it's very typically d- dependent upon where it's going to presumably if, if someone has a real adverse reaction to it the chances are it's just not the right home for it in the first place and like you said like most of the time it's a, I, no way it's personal because why would it be um Yes, yeah, right. you're going
0: to say sorry. And um, stories are very subjective. So mm. the story that I will love, uh, if, if I'm, I'm, I'm an editor and I look at stories, there's certain stories I'll immediately fall in love with. And there's certain stories that I just won't connect with. Mm. And it doesn't mean that they're not good stories. It just means that my particular type of reading, the things I look for in a story are just not in that particular story. But it doesn't mean that somebody else won't love it
1: so true that's so so true well i'm glad you've persisted Eugenie, and i'm so glad that um that i've gotten the chance to talk to you today about dungbuck things so did you mention are you working on a, another novel do you, you do you have something coming out next year is that what i heard you say
0: yes so next year i have two books coming out one is another collection, and I was really happy when the publisher accepted it, and this one is called Chasing Whispers, that is coming out uh, through Royal Dog Publishing Press, and that's speculative fiction, it also has a lot of black protagonists, and it's black people's awesome. stories, that's so it's good. black speculative fiction, but I also have a novel that's coming out in March, it's uh, Major Fools, and so I created, it's set in Tanzania, which is where I was born, but I've created a fictional world called Mafinga, and it's a socialist state. So in the past, Tanzania used to be very socialist, and it's about a black protagonist who is trying to understand the socialist situation and, and the dystopian world that she's in, and she's looking for more, she wants to make a difference.
1: Oh man, I'm keen to read that. I cannot wait to read that. <laughs> so who's, who's that coming out with, Eugene? Who's, who's the with Mia, listeners?
0: Mia, that's with Meerkat Press. Meerkat Press. Fools, yeah, with Meerkat Press. I, and I have, it, it's listed on my website. So oh, you, good. On my, yeah, uh, EugenBacon.com. If you look at the homepage, you'll see the books. And Major Fools is one of those.
1: What I'll do, Eugene, is I'll put into the... Um, the notes of this podcast I'll put the transit lounge uh, for done black thing and I'll also put uh, put your your website as well so listeners can can check it out and get all your stuff because you are so prolific you are so prolific like the amount you produce is just nothing short of phenomenal I love it I love it and I'm dying to read those books and that's so awesome but it's been absolute joy getting the privilege of talking to you today on the program about your work oh
0: thank you I'm really delighted that we made time to engage and yeah, connect with you, some.
1: Thank you. It was always gonna happen. We were just gonna, you know, life gets in the way a little bit, but we persevered and we got there, much like with writing.
0: <laughs> That's right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Eugen. So everyone, that was Eugen Bacon talking to me about her brilliant collection of short stories, Danged Black Thing, which is now out available with the good folks at Transit Lounge Publishing. God, I must say I do love Transit Lounge Publishing and all they do, so Yeah, I think it's a testament to the great sort of titles that they published that I got the chance to speak to Eugene and uh, talk about her work and that it was published by Transit Lounge. So yeah, that goes off to to Transit Lounge Publishing and what they're doing. And yeah, again, reiterate, uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to Eugene Bacon on the show about her collection of short stories, Dang Black Thing. To that end, and as always, I will put into the notes or bio of this episode for spotify and soundcloud the link to uh transit lounge publishing's uh site particularly eugen's book there so you can get a copy of dang black thing as well as check out all the other really awesome titles that uh transit lounge publishing are releasing or forthcoming and Thank you also to you, as always, for listening to this episode of the show, as well as that uh, ever-proliferating back catalogue, as I like to call it, so so lovingly, so affectionately, that ever-proliferating uh, back catalogue. So be sure to go and check out all those other episodes, getting up to nearly a year in the tooth. Uh, I don't know if that's the expression, but yeah, getting up to nearly a year of episodes available for your hearing pleasure. Uh couple more episodes of the show coming up. Things are also in the pipeline as well. This snowball of momentum, uh, I was supposed to be wrapping up next week with Mike Burge, i.e. Uh, his debut novel, Tank Water, which is still very much going ahead. But I think that more episodes and more guests are coming out as well. Uh, some One in particular I'm very, very excited about, but it's kind of still in the in the development stages at the moment but uh get excited for that i certainly am if that uh, if that happens one of my favorite australian riders so i'll keep that uh, under my hat for the time being but yes please listen to all the other episodes if you haven't already Get a copy of Dained black thing from the good folks at transit lounge if you haven't already listen to any and all of the previous episodes of the show as well and if you haven't yet give a cheeky follow on spotify if you're listening to this program There And yeah, please keep listening. I'll keep producing these episodes, talking to these really cool, staggeringly talented writers that I get the immense good fortune and privilege to talk to. And yeah, everyone have a lovely Saturday afternoon. I myself now am skedaddling off to go to a movie. First movie in a cinema that I've been to, you know, in 100 plus, whatever it was, days of lockdown. My last movie I went to was a horror movie as well, Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It. And this one I'm seeing today is Candyman. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So I'm going to go and do that. And in the interim, you guys all have a lovely afternoon. Stay safe, get jabbed. And I will be speaking next week to Mike Burge.